0: The 1917 Halifax Explosion, which occurred during the First World War, remains to this day the deadliest disaster in Canadian history. What is little known, though, is that many years later in 1945, during the Second World War, there was actually a second Halifax Explosion. This second Halifax explosion was a series of enormous blasts that could be seen and heard for miles, sending mushroom clouds high into the sky and causing a fire whose flames reached 150 feet up into the air. The explosions were from a series of smaller ammunition depots in the city. They were there to supply the war in Europe, but the fire was drawn closer to the vastly larger Central Explosives Depot right there in the city. If the flames reached it, they would ignite a second Halifax explosion that risked being even worse than the one that completely destroyed the city 28 years earlier. As the flames grew closer to the depot, some 80,000 people fled Halifax. However, a small but dedicated group of men and women risked their very lives in a valiant, defiant, and heroic effort to stop a second catastrophe in Halifax.
1: You're listening to Backyard History, the hidden stories that happened in your own backyard. The podcast version of the weekly history column running in newspapers across the Maritimes with your host and author, Andrew
2: McLean. The first explosion was at a naval jetty where ammunition was stored for shipment. Typed reporter Mel Suffren from Halifax
0: on July 18, 1945, as a fire raged in the city's
2: munition depot. The naval magazine lies on the north shore of the Bedford Basin, about four miles in a straight line from the northern tip of the city of Halifax. Since 1942, it has been a storage place for naval ammunition, shells, propellants, and depth charges. The area of the magazine is a huge one stretching for more than a mile along the basin and back into the scrub country to the northeast. Further explosions, as the fire spreads to other stores of explosives, I hope that the fire will not reach and explode the main naval magazine in Halifax Harbor.
0: Canadian press reporter A.D. Merkel
1: wrote the following day that, Apparently, the fire started in one of the barges tied up at the South Jetty during suppertime. It might have been caused by spontaneous combustion. It was first noticed by patrolman henry r clark of harrow ontario on guard duty at the warehouse he telephoned the armament depot in dartmouth this phone call was received by a
0: switchboard in dartmouth which was operated by the wrens which is short for the women's royal naval service according to an account of the events which
3: leading Wren eileen bowen wrote for the canadian press Marjorie Qualheim, tall and blonde to whom explosions are familiar, after working three years as a switchboard operator in the cordite plant at Transcona, Manitoba, took the first call for a fire
1: truck. Patrolman Henry R. Clark was last seen coming down the jetty to investigate the blaze
3: which preceded the blast. Ren Qualheim put the first call through, but before the truck had even left the depot, the first explosion rocked the building. The great explosion sent an enormous mushroom-shaped plume
0: hundreds of meters into the air above Halifax. The fires raged, threatening Halifax at a curious time. The Second World War had in effect ended, but also not ended. 71 days earlier, on May the 8th, 1945, Nazi Germany had surrendered. Although there was a buoyant, celebratory mood of victory all across Canada, the war was still being fought on in the Pacific against Imperial Japan. For Haligonians, though, the war was thought to be pretty much over. And after years of fears of Nazi U-boats, they finally thought they were safe. However, German submarines were not the only things that Haligonians had been worried about for the past half-decade-long war. During the war, Halifax acted as a shipment point for democracy with enormous quantities of powerful explosives manufactured across Canada, passing through its ports on the way to Europe. Since the war had ended barely two months earlier, a backlog of explosives had been piling up in the city's munitions depot. And now those munition depots were on fire. The entire city was at risk That first explosion that rang out was merely an early warning, and it was closely followed by other, smaller explosions as the fire gained strength and it raced towards the central explosive storage site. When it heard the news of another Halifax explosion in the making, the Moncton Daily Times newspaper wrote,
4: Canadians all across the country must have shuddered as they heard the news and recalled the tragic horrors and vast destruction in the catastrophe nearly 29 years ago. We hope and pray for the Nova Scotian capital. The situation is highly alarming because the blasts will certainly continue. Reporter Mel Suffren, who was in Halifax at the time, wrote
2: that The great blast and the recurring minor explosions set a chill through the hearts of Haligonians who saw their city almost wiped out by an explosion 28 years ago. That was on December 6th, 1917, when an ammunition ship blew up in the harbor, causing more than 1,600 deaths and thousands of injured. Many residents of Halifax still bear scars from that blast in 1917, which has always been referred to as the Great Halifax Disaster.
0: It would require quick action to halt the flames before the whole munitions depot exploded, causing a second catastrophic Halifax explosion. The man in charge of dealing with the crisis that was rapidly spiraling out of control was Captain O.C.S. Robertson,
1: who reporter A.D. Merkel described as, A giant of a man, his face and arms bronzed in the sun, his lean and athletic frame clad in trousers and sweater, With a naval cap his only badge, winner of the coveted George Medal for having taken a burning ammunition ship out of Halifax Harbour during the war and commanding officer at HMC Dockyard, he had been on the job from the first. At the time of the first
0: of what would be many explosions that night erupted, Captain Robertson had been dining in the Nova Scotia Hotel in downtown Halifax with Lieutenant Commander William
5: Schlater, who wrote, At 6.35 p.m., the city of Halifax was rocked by the blast of a tremendous explosion from the direction of Bedford Basin, which shook even the solid structure of the Nova Scotian Hotel more than five miles away. Captain O.C.S. Robertson, who was dining in the hotel at the time, left immediately and ordered a speedboat from the dockyard to take him to the scene of the explosion. I accompanied him. Approaching Bedford Magazine area, it was observed that many windows near the Narrows were smashed and broken. Rounding Turtlehead, it was observed that fires were burning and intermittent explosions were rocking the area at the southeast of the magazine. The wooden jetties there had been blown out into the harbour and a stream of naval craft and sick bay attendants were speeding towards the area. Captain Robertson and I found the pier littered with debris. As we proceeded up the road, it was observed that all the buildings had been gutted by the first explosion. Great holes had been torn in the brick buildings, and ammunition boxes lay scattered in the path taken by the blast. Three firetruck and naval firefighting parties were already on the scene, endeavoring to contain the fire. Two firefighting boats attempted to contain the fire from seaward, but explosions of developing intensity drive them back as the sea was showered with shells and debris from the exploding magazine. The fire was obviously spreading. I witnessed the burning of Brest in France and many fierce destroyer actions in the English Channel and the Bay of Biscay last year, and can say the intensity of the explosions was worse than anything I've ever seen in battle. As the naval firefighting crews pressed forward into the danger area, Captain Robertson decided it would be advisable to evacuate all civilian and naval personnel in Halifax and Dartmouth.
0: Reporter Mel Suffren added,
2: As soon as the first terrific explosion, people began filing from their homes. There were no signs of panic. Every truck, military and civilian in Dartmouth was pressed into service to move people from the danger areas surrounding the magazine. Cars loaded with men, women, and children with household goods streamed by. About 2,000 residents of North Dartmouth were moved to the Army's artillery center at Eastern Passage. Military District 6 ordered food for the evacuees. Every few minutes the air split with a loud blast and the earth for miles around shuddered under the concussion. Between 4,000 and 5,000 people were moved to the Coal Harbour District, and police said they would remain in open fields. From the distance of about 2 miles from the depot, small explosions sounded with the rapidity of machine gun fire. In the Preston Road District of Dartmouth, 4,000 more Dartmouth people were staying in the open. In a clear view of the Bedford side of the basin, the flames, stretching for hundreds of yards, could be seen reaching 150 feet into the air. Fireboats, which were rushed to the scene early tonight, were withdrawn when it was found that the blaze was uncontrollable. Periodically, pillars of flame shot high into the air as new explosions were set off. Meanwhile,
0: back inside of the Dartmouth Communications Center, leading Wren
3: Eileen Bowen wrote, Wren Ruth Kidd, auburn-haired and petite, was visiting friends in Dartmouth on her off-day afternoon when she heard the first explosion and ran towards the armament depot. I could hardly make my way through the crowd of people evacuating their homes. She knew the switchboard would be unusually busy. Wren Marjorie Qualheim said that, From then on, the switchboard lit up like a Christmas tree. The two girls worked from the time of the first explosion all night during the blasts until 11 o'clock the next morning.
2: Reporter Mel Suffren wrote, Blasts continued to rock the area with a detonation at 12.20 a.m., which was even louder than the first one. It was thought at first that this was the main explosive storage going off, but naval officers said it was not.
3: The two wrens took turns at the switchboard, working with helmets on. Which are awkward things to work with when you have headphones on. All during the hectic night, people came into the depot seeking shelter from the thunderous blast and wanting help finding relatives lost in the melee. After the heaviest explosion at four in the morning, the lights went out and the two girls worked on by flashlight putting calls through from crouched positions on the floor. Plaster covered the switchboard like snow, and they were covered with dust and grime. No windows were smashed in the depot, but strong, thick steel doors 25 feet high were mangled like tissue paper. At some point during the night, an abrupt and
0: risky change in tactics was made. Instead of fighting the fire itself, Energy was devoted to an ingenious but difficult effort to flood the main ammunition depot with water. It's actually not even clear just how coordinated the effort amongst those fighting the fire actually was. In the dark of the night, as explosions rang out around them and black acrid smoke covered everything, it seemed to be chaos on the scene where the firefighters worked it's actually not entirely clear who was on the site at that point anywhere, leading the effort to fight the fires. During the complete chaos and the darkness of that night, hundreds of ordinary Haligonians had chosen not to run away from the fire, but instead to run towards it in an effort to save the city. According to an extremely detailed
1: write-up in Bedford Magazine, compiled by H. Millard Wright, The newer magazines, most of which had been built since 1939, were flooded by volunteer fire parties to avert the possibility of further explosions. These newer magazines were located in the area to the northeast. The blaze had started in the southwest corner and was gradually forcing its way to the new section when it was finally checked.
0: It seems that the city was saved from a second catastrophic Halifax explosion by the efforts of a mysterious group of unknown people who made the decision on their own to flood the ammunition depot. And it seems that the people who flooded it were ordinary citizens of Halifax. During the next day, the battle against the flames continued. Two more especially great explosions rang out. However, by the evening of the 19th, reporter Mel Suffren wrote, apparently this time from an aircraft, that
2: From the air, early tonight, the explosion scene looks innocuous enough. Clouds of heavy grayish smoke were still rising from the North End area, but furthest away from Halifax.
0: At this point, Haligonians began to collectively relax. Multiple newspaper reports mentioned an unidentified male who rushed towards the scene of the explosions, not to help, but to rapidly set up a little stand outside to sell cold drinks and cigarettes to the rescue crews fighting the fire. He apparently managed to make a quick buck before the military authorities angrily sent him on his way. And I really love that detail, because first of all, it's hard to not admire the sheer audacity of that guy, but also because it's difficult to think of a more potent symbol of the war finally coming to an end and of Halifax's changeover of a wartime old garrison city into a trade-oriented port city in a peaceful post-war modern world than that. Because if a series of explosions had rang out on a military supply depot only 72 days before these events, Haligonians would have assumed they were under attack by a Nazi U-boat. Now however, it seems that things were being taken a little bit more lightly, even in the face of danger. By the next day, even as the fire still smoldered and smaller explosions still rattatatted away in the distance, a Canadian press reporter wandered amongst Haligonians and observed
4: that, with the tension over, little knots of people gathered on street corners and in offices, sharing their spiciest explosion stories. One bruised individual will give windows a wide berth next time he hears an explosion as he leaned out to watch the pyrotechnic display. Down came the window with the gentleman's neck under it. Open doors will also hold a particular terror for a Halifax woman as she paused in a doorway an unexpected explosion banged the door shut sending her a considerable distance into the hallway. And there are laments too for belongings which were destroyed. One woman told of the loss of a half dozen smashed aches. Even in the heart of the explosions,
0: as they busily worked away all night, doing the all important job of keeping those phone lines open, those two wrens, Ruth Kidd and Marjorie Qualheim
3: later recounted that. We would have rather been working than anything else. We were too busy to be nervous, and we were in contact with the magazine the whole time, so we knew what was going on. We had a radio on most of the night and kept putting calls through and ducking down on the floor to the sounds of Strauss waltzes. From now on, I'll never hear the music of Danube, so blue, so blue, without thinking of that night.
0: Two days later, reporter A.D. Merkel was taken on a
1: tour of the scene of the explosion by the naval authorities. He found that everything within this immediate area is a waste with craters showing at frequent intervals, but the ground is so littered with live ammunition that it is impossible to traverse. A substantial portion of the live ammunition housed within the raised area did not explode at all. He noted that although the city had indeed been lucky, the Munitions Depot had actually
0: been specifically designed with several safeguards in place to try and prevent a catastrophe like what happened 28 years earlier.
1: The magazines were protected by earthen embrasures of reinforced concrete designed in such a way to pilot air inside one end and out the other, leaving the walls and roof intact and the ammunition undetonated this is precisely what happened though the safeguards had worked as intended they were not
0: foolproof as the fact that the explosions ever happened in the first place very clearly showed on july the 19th even as the explosion still rang out in halifax e.l cousins who was the wartime administrator of all the atlantic canadian ports did an interview with the canadian
6: press in which he defiantly stated The blasts in the magazine are the threat under which Halifax has been living the last six years. In a single month of this war, as much as 5,000 tons of high explosives had been handled across Halifax docks and sent on their way to European battlefields because it was the only Canadian port at which they could be handled. As a result of the blast, the people of Canada may now realize, perhaps more clearly than they have in the past the strain under which the citizens of Halifax had been carrying on since the war began six years ago. Thousands of Haligonians knew of the heavy explosive shipments, and they did not know when some disaster might occur. The danger was continuous, and there was no averting it, but the city as a national port took this in stride. There was no complaining nor any demand that the shipments of explosives be handled at some other, isolated, less congested port. It was looked upon as part of the war effort, and that Halifax made this its great contribution to the war effort.
1: That was Backyard History, with your host, Andrew McLean. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for another hidden story that happened in your own backyard. Produced by Jordan Lozier.